Well, we meet this morning in a new month, and we usually have open form the first Lord's Day of the month. Um, but I thought it might be a good thing to do to follow up on some of the things we were talking about last week, and um, want to connect it with some of the things we've been also talking about on, on Wednesday night. Um, one of the things I tried to underscore in our gathering last week is uh, just how pervasively uh, Old Testament the New Testament is, just how pervasively uh, Hebrew or Jewish the Christian faith is, just really based upon the Law and the Prophets, uh, Paul's Gospel, uh, that he writes to the Romans. He says it's witnessed by the Law and the Prophets. He promised beforehand do the Law and the Prophets. Uh, um, and he quotes the Old Testament 60-some-odd times in Romans and alludes to it a bunch of other times. I'd even mention the Adam, uh, Jesus contrast in chapter 5 that he makes. Uh, it's vital to his argument, and it's really going back again to the creation narrative and uh, the fall of man and through the one man through whom sin entered into the world and death through sin, that death passed upon all men for that all have sinned. How, how, how fully based upon the Old Testament, the New Testament is, I think it's just very clear, just reading the Gospels, reading the book of Acts, reading the numerous quotations we have. But there's another part of the New Testament that sometimes we're not aware of, sometimes we fail to see, Sometimes we have a certain sense of it, but when it's pointed out to us, uh, uh, we say, ah, <laughs> it's there. Never really saw that before. That's interesting. And, and that is that it's often the narratives of the Old Testament that get interwoven into the arguments that the New Testament authors are giving. And we're not even aware that it's, tr- that it's so. One of those examples, I pointed out to you how uh, in the Gospel of Matthew, um, you see the new Exodus theme that comes to the fore um, just so clearly in that you have Herod the Great who's really doing a Pharaoh thing, putting to death <coughs> children. Um, same thing that Pharaoh did, looking to slaughter the Hebrew children. Um, Herod the Great's doing the same thing. And then they flee to Egypt and then there Herod dies and God sends an angel to tell Joseph it's safe to come back there's a new, new king in town and, you know, besides Jesus of course but uh, this new earthly king that's taken over for Herod and Archelaus is in, in his, in, reigning in his stead and is okay to come back and says this was to fulfill what the prophet said uh, out of Egypt have I called my son and that's back in the book of Hosea and the book of Hosea is talking about the exodus it's talking about out of Egypt this son that is let my son go that he might worship me in the wilderness was Moses' words to Pharaoh um, out of Egypt have I called my son Israel was the son and out of Egypt they were brought how does that relate to Jesus? well it's because Jesus is the one who's come to bring a new exodus a new deliverance and so you have, out of Egypt, the son being called after the, the death of the Pharaoh, you know, firstborn of the Pharaoh, uh, it's safe now to, to return. And now he, now he returns, and what happens? Well, Jesus goes out into the wilderness, and he's tempted by the devil. And a lot of times we would think, well, that's talking about uh, Jesus as the second Adam, uh, recapitulating the temptation in the garden. 
But actually, what Jesus is doing is he's quoting three passages in the book of Deuteronomy. It's all found in Deuteronomy. The man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And then, they shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve, and you shall not tempt the Lord your God. Those three quotations it is written that Jesus gives is all from the book of Deuteronomy, where we're told that God brought these things upon them, that he might test them. So, Israel was being tested in the wilderness, just as Jesus was being tested in the wilderness. And no sooner does that testing take place, that um, Jesus is at the, at the river, <laughs> and uh, he's baptized in, in the river Jordan, just you know, like the, Israel went through the sea. I'm sorry, the sea came first. Baptism came first, temptation came second. I got that backward. And then what happens? He goes to the mount, and he gives something of a of uh, the, the, king, the law of the kingdom spoken from the mount um, and that's a recapitulation of the, of the story of the exodus because Matthew is telling us that Jesus is one who's come to bring about a new exodus and you have it on the mount of transfiguration where the text itself says that he talked to Moses and to Elijah about the exodus that's the word the exodus he would perform in um, in Jerusalem um, I might say departure in some of our Bibles or whatever it says to translate that word. The word is Exodus. And um, so there's the consciousness of that narrative. The story of Israel is being recapitulated by Jesus, just like the story of Adam is being recapitulated by Jesus. As Paul says about Adam, uh, the Adam Jesus thing that the one man sin entered the world in death through sin, so that death passed upon all men for the all of sin. He says in that context that Adam was a type of him who was to come. He uses the word tupas, which is the Hebrew word, uh, the Greek word for type. He's a type of him who, who was to come. And yet Peter's doing that whole thing about, uh, about uh, Mo, uh, Noah being a type, uh, whereas by, through baptism we are saved. <laughs> Just as they were saved through water, we're saved through water. And that's in the book of 1 Peter chapter 3. So you have all these narratives that go on, uh, um, the flood account, the creation account, the... the um, the second Adam theme, the um, Exodus theme, uh, David the king, the Jesus as king, all those narratives are just undergirding uh, many of the, uh, of, of the uh, teaching passages of scripture. And um, again, you see it in the Gospels. I think you see it in a lot of Paul's letters. Uh, I'm reading a book now on the, how Galatians has a narrative substructure that is, uh, I'm not, it's like a 500 page book, so I'm not halfway through it. But it's a very interesting argument that's being made. I I'm, I'm, don't say I'm wholly convinced about it, but it's interesting that people are thinking in, this, in these ways today. And uh, it's a, pro- a proper way to think because of how the Old Testament narratives do suffuse the hearts and minds of people. And you and I read it as 21st century Americans, and, and we don't see Old Testament in it. And, and a lot of times we get confused. And we say, well, I don't really understand what he's saying and why he's saying it in that way. And then you realize, well, that's because I'm not a first century Jew that's well-schooled in Old Testament studies. If I, if I knew the Old Testament better, I'd understand that argument better. I'd understand the book of Revelation better. Again, people think that it's the modern um, newspapers that are going to form them how to understand Revelation when it's really the Old Testament. That It's funny, Revelation's a book that never quotes the Old Testament. There's never a direct citation of the Old Testament in the book of Revelation. But yet the Old Testament is everywhere. 
It's everywhere. It's, it's alluded to. It's uh, uh, the language that's used. Uh, I think in the Greek, uh, the, uh, it's called the Nestle Allen Greek Bible. They have at the end uh, in the Greek Bible where they think, at least in their judgments, there are references to the Old Testament. I think the book of Revelation has something like 400 of them. 400 of them. And some people think that's conservative. Some people think it may even be more allusions to the Old Testament scriptures. And so the reason we don't understand the book of Revelation better is because we don't understand the Old Testament better. It was written for a people that were aware of what God has already said and God has already spoken. They are being, being instructed in the teaching of the Old Testament. And, and that's why our Hebrew study, for me, has been very helpful. We've been doing Wednesday night, the book of Hebrews. We've just been taking little chunks each time we gather together on Wednesday evening. And I've never seen before the way in which the book of Hebrews just brings to our attention a rich, quite developed, you might call it a biblical theology, of the narratives of the Bible that undergird the the argument of the book of Hebrews. Again, what's the argument of the book of Hebrews? Well, the argument of the book of Hebrews, when you look at the uh, nature of the book, it's called a, a word of exhortation in chapter 13. That's how the writer defines his book. He calls it a word of exhortation. It's a word of encouragement. And certainly you can read through the book of Hebrews and you see at pivotal points in the letter, there are encouragements. And the encouragements really have this at its heart. Don't give up. Don't give up. Don't lose the hope that's set before you. Don't um, forsake the things that you were taught. Hold on to them. Don't drift away from them. Uh, hold fast the hope, firm unto the end. Um, that's the teaching of Hebrews. It's don't draw back. It's press forward. It's draw near. Don't draw back. So it has that practical word to a people that are threatening in some way just to give up on the Christian faith. And to say, continue on. Finish the race. Don't lose your sight of the hope that's set before you in the gospel. Well, that's the practical point of it. But how does he argue it out? Well, he argues it out in terms of seeing Jesus as the fulfillment of the stories of the Old Testament. And if we really understand the stories of the Old Testament and the way that Jesus fulfills the stories of the Old Testament, there'd be no question that continuance is absolutely mandatory. You just can't can't say it's retirement age, and so I have to give up on the... On, um, on on my faith. I I have to press on. I have to continue on. And how does it work? Well, we've seen on Wednesday nights that the book of Hebrews, uh, first of all, sets forth Jesus as the one who is the appointed heir of all things. That's one of the first things that's said about Jesus in some six statements about him that's made in chapter 1. In the last days, in uh, um, chapter 1 and verse 2, long ago, many times, many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. That's the Old Testament. God spoke in the Old Testament. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. 
And you might think, well, we don't need the Old Testament anymore. We have the Son. And the Son is the final revelation. The Son is the greater revelation. The only prophets were used. Now the Son has come. The incarnate Son of God has come. Why, why listen to the prophets any longer? Why listen to the Old Testament any longer? Jesus has come. And Jesus tells me everything I need to know. Well, when you follow out the book of Hebrews, you'll see that the way in which Jesus is presented is so deeply embedded in the narratives of the Old Testament. This very language, the appointed heir of all things. The Son is the appointed heir of all things through whom also he created the world. So the one who created the world is the one who has a design for the world in which somebody somewhere is the inheritor of the world. And it's a son. A son is designed to inherit the world. Where did the Hebrews get that idea? Well, Jesus came. Jesus came and Jesus is the one who comes to inherit the world. What you see, there's more to it. It's the fact that... uh, Well, in verse 4, it says, having become much superior to the angels, as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. And you go on in chapter 2 to argue out, he doesn't take the nature of angels. He takes the nature of human beings because of this name that he's inherited. This name that marks him out as the Lord of all things, as the one who's the sovereign governor and the one who possesses all things. That's what it is that he inherits. Jesus inherits dominion. He inherits the world to come. Who governs the world to come? Jesus. But he governs the world to come because he is the one who comes to restore what a son, a previous son lost through sin. There was a previous son who was set out by God to be the inheritor of the world. His name is Adam. He's the first created man. He was placed in Eden and he was said to have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air. He was the first one to have dominion over all things. And through sin, he got exiled from Eden. He got exiled from the garden. He was placed at a distance from God. Uh, out of God's presence. He's the one who's through whom sin entered into the world. And man's dominion has been lost. And what God did in sending his son is to bring about another son, the incarnate son, the true son, the natural son. Whatever you want to say about Jesus as the supreme son, the true son, son in terms of the eternal relationship he had with the Father in the mystery of the Trinity, but come in the human flesh to be the one who is the inheritor of the world, the one who has come to bring mankind back from distance from God to nearness to God. And in chapter 2, again it says in verse 5, For it was not to the angels that God subjected the world to come. Who did he subject it to? Well, he says it's been testified somewhere. And again, back to the Old Testament, it's Psalm 8, he points out. Psalm 8. Remember the Psalm 8? Oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And it goes on to give this sense of what man is in relationship to this God whose name is the excellent name. How excellent is your name through all the earth. What is man? You see man in relationship to God and you say, taint much. (laughs) But yet, you're mindful of him. It's the amazing thing. God's mindful. A puny little man. 
Look at the seeming infinite universe that God's made. What's our place in the midst of this infinite universe? It's a place for the God who created the infinite universe, seeming infinite universe, minds us. He has a mind of concern and care and pays attention to us. What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? And this is a creation psalm. This speaks about what God did at creation. You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor and have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air. That's man's dominion. That's man's dignity. Man's made as God's image. Man's made as God's son. Man's made to reflect the image of the God who made him. And you know, when you think about imaging things, when you think about man being the image of God, you know what we tend to image? You know what we tend to be like? The things we surround our lives with. The things we see. The things we hear. I know as, as a teacher and a preacher, if I'm, if I'm watching a preacher or listening to a preacher, seeing what pre- the preacher does and hearing what the preacher says, if I'm watching them long enough... Pretty soon on Sunday, I'm doing the things that he's doing. I'm making the motions that the preacher's making. We're imitative creatures. And we image what we're close to, what we're near to, what we surround our lives with, which is why it's so important that we surround our lives with good things. We surround our, our, our thoughts, uh, uh, we'll image what we hear and what we see. And it says, we behold God, as we see God, as we're near to God, as we hear the word of God, we then image God. And man was made to image God in the presence of God, walking with God in Eden. And it's that distance from God that really is the thing that makes us not to be accurate images, because we're not near to God. We're distant from God as a result of sin. And so we imitate the things that we see, and we image the things that we see. But Jesus has come to make God in flesh, concretized for us. We see God in the face of Jesus Christ. And we're called upon to believe in Jesus that we might image God. But but this whole question of man's dignity as a creature, made in his image, made for fellowship, made to be like God, made to have dominion over the creation of God, all things being placed subject under his feet, is something that he says at the end of verse 8, at presence we do not we do not see everything subject to him. A mild understatement. We don't see everything subject to mankind because of sin. Because we have lost the place we had in creation. And what God does in redemption in Christ is he brings us back to that place. But it's Jesus who's the one who brings us back. And so we don't see everything subject to him, but in verse 9, we see him who was for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. And so it's through death that we lost the image, but by Christ's death we were restored. Christ has come to restore us to God. He's the one who now fulfills Psalm 8. We see him. For a little while made lower than the angels, Jesus' incarnation, namely Jesus. We see him fulfilling the terms of the 8th Psalm, being crowned with glory and honor. And he 
brings us back to glory and honor as he suffers death for us, so by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Not for himself, but for us. He doesn't he didn't deserve to die, but he does it for us. And he goes on to say, It was fitting that he for whom all things exist, and for uh, by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory to make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. So in other words, Jesus is the one who went into the presence of God as, I think it says here, founder of their salvation. But the word itself actually has the connotation of the one who blazed the trail for us. He went into the presence of God for us. He's the leader. He's the pioneer. He's the one who blazed the trail. And what he does is he then brings many sons to glory. So it wasn't just he went to glory. No, he says, you try to find your way. He says, I blazed the trail. Now, I'm going to bring you to where I am. And the point is, this whole matter of living the Christian life does not end until we're with him. We can't say we can quit at this point because the destination is not just a couple of years being a preacher or being a Sunday school teacher or being a minister. And then when something happens to interrupt our lives, we just pack it in. <laughs> you can't pack it in. You know, it's the old story of the kid in the car. We're not there yet. <laughs> We're not there yet. And Jesus' purpose is to bring us to glory. So we can't quit until we get where he is. That's what he prayed for. Remember, he prayed in John 17... He desired that where he is, they would be also. He wants his people to be with him. And so the whole understanding of Jesus restoring what was lost through Adam really suffuses this whole section of chapter 2. Man's purpose and destiny to be heir of all things, lost through sin, now restored through Jesus, who's heir of all things, who through his death now brings many sons to glory. And we can't give up until we are with him in glory. But then as he argues out this whole matter of the things that Jesus did, he brings quotations from the Old Testament to show the intimacy of Jesus' relationship to the people he comes to redeem. He's not just some distant uh, leader in general that we never have contact with. He's not ashamed to call us brothers. He quotes the psalm. He quotes Isaiah 8. And he says in verse 14 that since the children share in flesh and blood, that's you and me, he himself partook of the same things. He became incarnate, taking human nature. Doesn't take the nature of angels, takes the nature of fallen humanity. And, and then this, there is this state, statement here, which I, on a, I, I tried to teach it on Wednesday night. I, I said it's a difficult statement because it's not the terms that we would normally think of when we think of Jesus dying for us. We would think that Jesus died for us because, well, we're guilty and sinful and we got a bad record and we got a bad heart. And we, we'll think of it in terms of the theological categories that we have. And we're not wrong to do that. Those are proper theological categories, guilt and grace and, um, you know, 
the regeneration of the, of the bad heart given a good heart. All those things are proper and true and, and right. And there's much biblical support for those notions and those ideas. But there's something else that the scripture has. It has a story of divine redemption. It has a story. Not only a story of creation and the end of creation that you see in the Garden of Eden that got lost through sin and now Jesus comes and restores that. But you have this whole picture of divine redemption because what happens when people are exiled from God? When they're cast out of the garden, they're distant from God, and they stop serving God. What happens? Well, a vacuum is created. They're going to find something to serve. And that's called slavery. Do you not know to whom you present your members as servants to obedience his servant that servant his servant you are to whom you obey whether of sin unto death or obedience to righteousness we were slaves of sin we become servants to god slavery is the great theme or motif as the technical term that writers use um, is for what um, we have in sin jesus says he that commits sin is the slave of sin. If the Son sets you free, you shall be free indeed. It's one of the great categories of Christian salvation, liberation from slavery. We are captives to sin, and we are now redeemed through the blood of Christ. But what's the great Old Testament story that speaks about deliverance from slavery? It's the Exodus. It's the captivity of Israel in Egypt. It's, again, what Matthew talks about. Jesus comes to bring a new exodus. You have a new pharaoh. There's a new bondage. There's new um, need for enduring the temptations of the wilderness, uh, hearing the things that are spoken from the mountain. All that's there in Matthew. But here we have a statement that does have, it seems to me, the narrative of the exodus right there in the text and before we look at it let me just say this is preparatory to chapter 3 and actually chapters 3 and 4 and what happens in chapters 3 and 4 well chapters 3 and 4 were actually brought into seeing Moses and how he contrasts with Jesus so the one who was the great deliverer of the Old Testament people of God, humanly speaking, I mean, it was, it was Yahweh that redeemed them with a high hand and a mighty arm, but it was through Moses. Moses was faithful in all of God's house as a servant. Jesus is faithful in all of God's house as a son. And then it speaks about that um, Christ is faithful over God's house as a son at the end of, uh, in verse 6, and we are his house. We become the house over which Jesus presides. Maybe the house there is a temple, I'm not really sure, or the family, maybe the household, that we become the family of God if indeed we hold fast our confidence and boasting in our hope. And, and then he goes into the 95th Psalm. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says in verse 7, goes to the 95th Psalm. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Well, whose heart got hardened in the Exodus narrative that we know about? Pharaoh. Pharaoh. Pharaoh's heart got hardened. Now the warning is, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness. You put the test in the wilderness 
And you can't be hardening your heart like Pharaoh did. Well, what's the problem? Well, the problem is, though Israel was taken out of Egypt, Egypt never got taken out of them. Isn't that true? Again, remember reading? Every time something difficult happened, what do they want to do? We want to go back to Egypt. We're tired of this manna, this old stuff. We want to get back to where we had a great variety on the menu in Egypt. They totally forgot their servitude, their slavery, because they had slave mentalities. Slavery was bound up in their hearts. The Bible speaks of the Egyptian experience of the Israelites in Deuteronomy and also in Jeremiah as being in an iron furnace. They were in an iron furnace. I spent the day in the hospital and I couldn't wait to get out. <laughs> I was going crazy. How to get out? Got to get out of here. Got to go, go home. I can't imagine what it would have been like to have been in an iron furnace. I can't imagine what it would have been like to have been, been a slave. How Christians in America ever justified it, I, I, I just don't get it. I just don't get it. How could they ever have defended it? Uh, I just don't get it. If they have any kind of imagination at all, I mean, they don't even need an imagination. They could just look at what's going on. The the bestial conditions that the blacks were placed under. Under the lash, with all the things that happened during slavery in the South, and you'd have Christians writing defenses of slavery. And now it's a good thing. Did they read their Old Testaments? I just don't know. You don't have to be a liberation theologian to say that slavery is not a natural condition. Man was not made to be a slave. He was made to have dominion. And not just white men. All men were made to have dominion. Not to be slaves. But they were slaves. Not just externally, but internally. They were slaves in their hearts. Their hearts were like Pharaoh's. God says, therefore, I was provoked with that generation, so they always go astray in their heart. They've not known my ways, and as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter into my rest. And he calls upon God's people to encourage one another to take care lest there be in any one of you an evil heart of unbelief and departing from the living God. Exhort one another day by day, as long as it is called today, that none of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, that you don't become like Pharaoh. You've come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm unto the end. Who were those that heard and, and rebelled? Verse 16, it was, was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? They got out of there. They were led through the Red Sea. And yet, God was provoked for 40 years till they died in the wilderness. Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness, to whom he did swear that they would not enter into his rest? It was those who were disobedient. They were not able to enter in because of unbelief. You see what he's doing? He's saying Christians realize you've been brought out of slavery, just like Israel was brought out of slavery. But the purpose for which Israel was brought out of slavery was to be liberated from being like Pharaoh. 
to come to learn to be like God. To come to worship Him on the mountain. And they were put through this test in the wilderness that God would know what was in their hearts. And it was only the generation that followed the Lord that was able to enter into Canaan. And we're not in Canaan yet. We're not in the land of promise yet. So don't be like them falling in the wilderness. Be like those who by faith inherited the promises, entered into the land. Don't be content with getting out of Egypt until you get the glory. Because it may be that Egypt is still in your heart. <laughs> the whole purpose of God bringing you to himself is to transform you, not just outwardly, not just to change your outward condition, but to change the heart. Circumcise the foreskin of your heart is what the people were called to do. But now, chapters 3 and 4 address Moses, address the wilderness, address their failure to enter into the land because of their unbelief. But my question is, how did they get into the wilderness? What explains this whole matter of how they got out of Egypt? Well, that's where those difficult verses in 2, 14, and 15 come in. Read it with the Exodus in mind. Read it with Egypt in mind. Read it with the condition of the people of Israel in mind. Read it as to the way they got out of Egypt and they got into the wilderness to be tested by God and ultimately to be believing His promises and entering into the land, which is what you want to follow. You want to follow that generation that believed. You want to follow that generation that entered into the land. You don't just want to get out of Egypt and not have Egypt out of you. How do you get out of Egypt? Well, through Jesus. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, that is Jesus, likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. Now, there's no question that Satan is the one who's destroyed by the death of that death of Jesus. That's a thought that gets repeated again and again and again. But then it goes on to say, and to deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Now, of course, we were slaves to our sin. But it's a strange statement to make that we were subject to lifelong slavery. And through fear of death, we all their lifetimes subject to slavery. A lot of people are not fearing death. A lot of people live their lives as if they're never going to die. And if they do, well, they don't seem to care. They take their own lives, after all. They uh, live uh, doing highly risky behaviors and activity. It's not like everybody is gripped with the fear of death. But this whole picture of one who has the power of death and who exercises the fear of death to keep people in bondage this is referring to Pharaoh. The power behind the throne is Satan, yes. But the one who exercises the power is Pharaoh. Pharaoh had the power of death. He exercised it with the killing of the infants. In chapter 2, it begins there. Chapter 2, Moses sees an Israelite uh, being beaten and he goes and he kills the Egyptian. And that turned around, Pharaoh knows this and he flees from from Egypt because why? Pharaoh's looking to kill him. 
Pharaoh was looking to kill him. Pharaoh had the power of death. And through the power of death, he kept the people slaves. Kept the people all their lifetime subject to bondage. And what did God do? Well, God dealt with the one who had the, who exercised domination and dominion through the fear of death, that through death, he finally released them. What did God do? He killed the firstborn children. It was through death. The death of the firstborn. That finally Pharaoh said, okay, get out of here. Get out of here. You take the lives of the firstborn, what else are you going to take? I don't have the control over death any longer. You obviously do, Moses. And your God does. So he capitulates, he gives in, he releases them. And then of course they come to the Red Sea and what happens there? Well, he changes his mind. He's going he's to bring them back. His heart was that hard. And it's only when the horse and rider are thrown into the sea that finally Pharaoh gets the point. God has the control of death. God triumphed over the horse and the rider. He destroyed the army of Pharaoh through death. And they're liberated. They're freed through fear of death. And the writer's saying that's exactly what Jesus did. That's what Jesus did. In his death, he liberates. Pharaoh, Satan thought that his, the death of Jesus was going to put him out of any possibility of being Israel's Messiah. And No. In the death of Christ, the, the works of the devil are destroyed. Again, not completely, not totally, but yet a death knell has been placed upon the devil. And now, those who are slaves of sin are now liberated through the death of Christ. But now, we're not in Canaan yet. That's the point of it. We have this deliverance through the death of Jesus. Yes, but Israel had deliverance too. Through the death of the firstborn and through the death of the armies in the Red Sea. But that did not ensure their entrance into Canaan. Didn't ensure their entrance into the promise. Because you could be taken out of Egypt and still not have Egypt taken out of you. You could be taken out of the world in terms of your identification externally. Well, internally, you bring the world into the church. You're still loving the world. You're still serving the world. And the call is, don't be like Pharaoh. Be like Jesus. Don't harden your heart. Have a heart that's tender towards God. So what I'm saying to you is that you really can't understand even the imagery that's being used if you really don't understand what God did in the deliverance he effected of Israel and Egypt because that's the model for what Jesus comes to do. It's upon the backdrop of the victory over sin and death through destroying Pharaoh and his chariots and his armies that Israel was liberated and now a new liberation has come in Jesus and it provides the type it provides the model it's a type of him who was to come and so that's how the narrative does um, so markedly undergird the teaching of the New Testament and we shouldn't be blind to that that that's you know it is what we see whether there's a direct quotation as often there is or whether there's just the language that's used that reminds you of the Old Testament model that the New Testament is based upon 
It's so those Old Testament narratives that feed in to the teaching of the New Testament. So I've said what I wanted to say on the point. Uh, let me open it up if you have any questions. Did you all follow me? Yes, Tim, please. I guess we say that because we have this Old Testament narrative that is something that actually took place in history, mm-hmm. gives us, uh, you know, that coral, obviously the correlation of what we, we don't see physically, but we see in faith in the, in the deliverance that Christ gives us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it's, it's, it's the recapitulation of the Old Testament stories that Jesus does. I mean, God, God set it up that way. He set it up that way. That the narratives of the Old Testament set the pattern. The man was made to be heir of the world in union with God, in communion with God as, as God's son. We've been made to have dominion, but was lost through sin. Presence of God was lost through sin. That sense of loyal sonship was lost through sin. And what Jesus does, he comes to restore all that. And what sin does is it brings us into slavery. Just as Egypt, just as Israel in Egypt was cast into slavery, cast into the iron furnace. And what God did in deliverance, again, it sets the pattern for this new deliverance that Jesus comes to bring. It's just like the kingship in Israel with David as the king, how Jesus uh, fulfills the model of the Davidic king. So in all these ways, the Old Testament sets the pattern for what the work of Jesus is. Uh, the story of Abraham sets the pattern in Galatians 3 and 4 of what Jesus comes to do as the, as the son of Abraham. Um, um, even uh, in chapter 4 of the book of Galatians, you have uh, the story of um, Ishmael and, uh, and Isaac uh, being the, 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 the two mountains, one in bondage and one in, one in liberation. Um, Mount Sinai under bondage and uh, 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 I don't remember exactly what the language is. I'm going to get it wrong if I don't look at it. Yeah, Mount Sinai bearing children for slavery. And uh, Hagar's um, corresponds to the present Jerusalem. Jerusalem above that's free, that is our mother. And Paul sees that as, uh, as something of an allegory, something of a picture of what Christian salvation comes to bring comes to bring freedom, comes to bring deliverance. So, again, my point is simply that we can't just limit our understanding of Old Testament, uh, the way the Old Testament feeds into the New Testament, by looking for the direct citations. That's often, you know, the easy part. (laughs) What it says, it says somewhere, Isaiah says, and this was done to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, then we know, yeah, okay, we have to go back to the Old Testament, we've got some work to do explaining th- that, but sometimes it's not all that evident. Sometimes you've got to do a little bit of spade work and working in the language and say, well, why is, he, why is he phrasing it in that particular way? Why is he speaking it in that particular way? 
And um, you have all these kind of changes in, in, in language that you find in the New Testament. And, and you, you wonder, why is it being spoken that way? And then you go back into the Old Testament and you see why it's spoken that way. You know, I've given you lots of examples in the past. I'll just remind you of a couple of them. You have the change in the language with regard to Jesus coming out of Jordan after his baptism and seeing the heaven opened. And uh, Luke and Matthew use a word that just speaks of the heaven being opened. But Mark uses a very strange word, skirzo. And that's a word that actually comes from the Greek translation of the book of Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter uh, 64, I think it is, Isaiah offers a prayer. And he says, oh, that you would tear open the heavens and come down. That you would tear open the heavens and come down. And Mark uses that word. The heavens were torn apart, torn open. As the Spirit of God comes down upon Jesus, Isaiah's prayers answered. Isaiah's prayers answered. God opened the heavens and came down in the person of his Son and the sending of the Spirit. God is with us. God is present. He opened the heavens and he's come down. And uh, again, you go back to the book of Isaiah and you see that that's in the context of the people of Israel uh, anticipating deliverance from Egyptian, from uh, Babylonian captivity. And expecting that God was going to come in some way like he came in the Exodus. And, uh, you know, you didn't have the same thing when Israel came back from, from, from Babylonian captivity that happened when Israel came out of Egypt. Israel came out of Egypt and the sea opened. Plagues came. God came on Mount Sinai in the midst of thunder and lightning. And the Babylonian captivity... Cyrus, the Persian king, just made a decree. He said, go home. It's in the interest of our empire not to have you here any longer. You've served whatever usefulness you had to the Babylonians, and we think we could better administer our empire by sending you back to where you came from. Where was God in that? Well, of course, God prophesied that that would take place, but no open heaven, no uh, theophany. No sea that was open and parted. The Euphrates didn't open so that the people of Israel could go back home. They just went back home. But where was theophany? Where do we see God's presence? Well, we'll see it in the morning worship. It's the Jesus who says to those that came to arrest him, I am. I am. They fell backward. Jesus is the incarnation of of God. He's theophany. He's divine presence. And so God rends the heavens and comes down in the fulfillment of Isaiah's prayer. Again, you're not aware of that until you do a little bit of rooting around and do a little bit of study of words and you really see just Mark made an intentional decision when he, he was probably reading his Old Testament in the Greek, and he saw that in the Greek Old Testament, Isaiah prayed this prayer. And he knew how God answered the prayer because he knew that Jesus had come. God's presence is in Jesus. And so when the heavens opened, he uses the word that Isaiah used in his prayer, that you would scurzo the heavens 
they come down. That's what God did in the coming of Jesus and the coming of the Spirit. There's numbers, numerous instances like that where um, the Old Testament is being drawn upon, and there's not a direct quotation, but it's just there in the language itself. It's just because, again, the mind of the biblical authors were so steeped into the Old Testament scriptures. They're thinking in those terms, and you and I tend not to. Now, we think in terms of uh, you know, our, our church's theology, which is right and good, because our church's theology is right and good, but um, we need to, I think, a little bit more think in terms of what actually the text is saying and what um, again sometimes we can take that too far this whole business of understanding the way echoes or allusions come in scripture we can sometimes take a good thing too far not everybody hears the same echoes I mean I hear clearly Exodus in Hebrews 2 14 and 15 if you don't hear it I'm not going to castigate you for it because uh, you know you don't hear it. You don't hear it. I, I I hear it clearly. I hear it clearly. I think it clearly undergirds the writer of the Hebrews' choice of words. Why he speaks about slavery. Why he speaks about um, deliverance. Uh, he's talking about Exodus, just as he's talking about the hardness of the heart. He sees Psalm ninety-five as the hardening of the hearts of the people, correlating to the hardening of the heart of Pharaoh that Egypt was not taken out of the people, even though they were taken out of Egypt. So, anyway, um, I hope some of this has been helpful. I hope some of this has rung a bell of interest in your minds and hearts. Uh, and um, I thought I'd get some of this stuff on record that we've been looking at on Wednesday evening. So, we've done it this morning. So, let's give God thanks as we go before him in prayer. <clears throat> Father, we are thankful for the whole Bible that you've given us, the fullness of the revelation that you've given us in your Son. And we pray that we would be a people that would receive with meekness the implanted word that's able to save our souls, that's able to build us up, that's able uh, to make us conformable to the image of Christ, who is the image of God, that we would be a people that would um, not just have some external Oh, profession of faith in which we declare we've been taken out of the world but truly the world will be taken out of us that uh, we would know the reality that we have been crucified with Christ and nonetheless we live and yet not I but Christ lives in me and the life that we now live we live by the faith of the son of God who loved us and gave himself for us that our faith would be transformative, our faith would be persevering, our faith would be something which we would not lose heart, but we would be motivated to press on and continue on in the way of faith and faithfulness. So look upon us with your favor, grant us your grace, give us hearts to worship you in the morning hour, and give us hearts to see one another this morning and fellowship with one another in ways that are blessed of you and are mutually profitable as we look to you asking these things in Jesus name. Amen.